This is DeRay Alalia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 143. Let's go get them. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur and you are listening to the before the millions podcast hey this is mark asquith the host of the seven minute mentor podcast global entrepreneur and all-round geek and you are listening to the before the millions podcast i am mc lobster the cash flow ninja and you're listening to before the millions podcast you're listening to the before the millions podcast but whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent you've come to the right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olalaye. What it do, BTM tribe? Welcome to a new installment, installment 143 of the Before the Millions podcast. I am super excited for a brand new episode, and uh, this may be one of my favorite episodes, but I must warn you, you may want to listen to this episode a few times. We get into the weeds of some of the best real estate strategies here in 2020. Here in this new decade, what's currently working today? Not what worked 30, 40, 50 years ago, but what's working today and how to best get deals done. How to make sure that no matter what, if you find a deal, you know how to take it down. No matter if you're a rental property investor, if you're a fixer and flipper, if you only pursue creative financing, if you're in apartments, no matter what happens. You know how to serve a motivated seller and get a deal done. That's what we're going to discuss on today's show. Not only will we take a deep dive into some of these strategies, but I'm going to highlight to you guys some creative financing options for a lot of your deals. I'm going to talk about my new course that's coming out, the motivated seller method, and why it trumps many of the strategies that are in the real estate market today. We're going to talk about how to profitably Yes, I said profitably overpay for properties. We're going to talk about another way to use OPM, not the traditional way of raising money or finding private money, but we're going to talk about a completely different way of using OPM in a way that serves you and every party involved in your transaction. We're going to talk about the cash flow versus lump sum cash conundrum, right? Should I be a rental property owner or should I be a fixer and flipper? One is going to provide me $200 a month per property. The other one is going to provide me $40,000 per deal. Which one should I go with? Or can I do both? And how do I go about that process? You know, many people have heard of no money down techniques and strategies or investing without your own funds or OPM or, or different ways to start investing that's risk-free. But I feel like A lot of the times when you listen to these late night infomercials, or maybe you're listening to a podcast, you're reading a magazine, you're reading an article, you you see no money down or you see some of these uh, risk-free techniques and you're like, this is too good to be true. So you just kind of, you know, it's water under the bridge. You don't really pay attention to it. You don't really gravitate towards it. And oftentimes I hear people, hey, I'm waiting to save this amount of money or I'm waiting to get my credit score fixed. 
or I'm waiting to get approved for a loan or I've been talking to some hard money lenders and people will have these things just just in their way, like month after month, year after year. And they're not seeing that it's not actually the money that's holding them back. It's their thoughts behind what's needed and it's their inability to go out and be resourceful. Because, again, there are tangible strategies that we use every single day in business that require none of the things I just named. And you using that as a crutch is not okay. So on today's episode, we're going to get into all of that. And oftentimes people are like, well, I actually never heard of it. Or people who have heard of it have just thought, well, I thought it was, you know, just this Internet stuff or I didn't think I could do it or it seems like it's too complicated. We're debunking all of that today. So as you guys can tell, I'm super excited to kind of get into today's show. We're skipping the tip of the week and we're getting straight to the meat and potatoes because a lot of you guys have listened to episode 142, the last episode of the For the Man's podcast, where I had a student spotlight. I brought on one of my students who just got his first deal under contract after five days. And we did the numbers on the show. He's currently working on the deal as we speak. And we broke down his deal on the show to where he's making a $40,000 profit. So today we're going to break down the method that he's using, my method, the motivated seller method, and how you could use it too. And guess how much money he has in the actual deal? None. So if you need to go back and listen to that, do that before you listen to this episode. Over the past four years, I've explored a ton of different strategies. Not only on this podcast with 140 millionaires from all over the world, but also in my personal investing journey. And I figured out what I liked and what I didn't like. I figured out what would get me to my goals and what just sounded good or what just made a lot of money. And we're going to break down exactly how you should pursue your investing journey moving forward. So don't be surprised if by the end of this episode, you completely decide to abandon your current strategy and you pick up some new tips, tricks, and tools to make sure that you are a prosperous investor. Real quick, if you're not already following me on social media, let's connect. Any questions that you have, I'd love to answer. My social media platform of choice is Instagram. So beforethemillions.com forward slash Instagram, or just look for DeRay Olalia in your nearest Instagram feed. And as soon as you add me as a friend, send me a message, introduce yourself, and I will do the same. And there's not a single type of individual I love to hear from more than a listener of this podcast, a member of our tribe, the Before the Millions tribe. So mention this podcast and any questions you have, I'm all ears. Any way that I can help you proceed forward in your investing journey, I will do that. At this point, hundreds of people can vouch that I will help you find the clarity that you need to move forward or to get past the hurdle that you're currently facing. Again, my Instagram handle is DeRayOlalia, or you could just go to beforethemillions.com forward slash Instagram. Okay, so the top real estate investing strategies here in 2020 and beyond. We're debunking all the myths and we're explaining exactly what these strategies are and what strategy is going to best suit you and your goals. So without any further ado, let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. I want to start by saying that the strategies that we're going to go over today, there's nothing inherently wrong with them. These are the best strategies in real estate. These are strategies that have withstood the test of time. There are tons and tons and tons of self-made millionaires who have and who do and who will continue to pursue these strategies. So none of these strategies are inherently bad. What I want to get across today is that certain strategies may 
suit you and fit you in a certain stage of life. I've been through over half of these strategies and they've suited me for different stages of my entrepreneurial journey. I yet still have goals for different strategies that I want to pursue in 5, 10, 15, 20 years that I don't currently pursue. I want to make it clear that in order for you to select a strategy that's best for you, it's going to depend on your resources. It's going to depend on the time that you have to dedicate, your your commitment level, the knowledge and education that you have in this space, or the knowledge and education and time that you're willing to dedicate to learning the craft, especially if it's a complex one. It's also going to depend on your goals. So inherently, none of these strategies are bad. They're all amazing strategies. But for where you are and what you're currently going through and what your goals are right now, you may just be like, dude, like this strategy is not for me whatsoever. I don't even want to think about this. And that's where I ultimately want to get you to, to a place to where you can confidently move forward in real estate, knowing that you've selected the best strategy for where you are right now and ultimately the best strategy to get you exactly where you want to be. And this is a process for me. And I'll use myself as an example as I go through these strategies so you understand what the pros and cons look like to me in my life. So let's start with flipping. I think that flipping is one of the most popular, if not the most popular real estate strategy on the planet. Every single show that has to do with real estate is a flipping show. You will never see an investing show with rental properties because, I mean, it's boring. It's cash flow every month. But flipping is probably the only investment strategy that gets mainstream media to millions and millions of people all day, every day. So most likely, the first time that you thought about investing was probably to start flipping properties. It's either that or becoming a realtor. Now, again, flipping is a great strategy, although there's a lot of fluff on TV and oftentimes they're not showing you what's really going on behind the scenes. It's a great strategy, especially if you're great with your numbers. Flips often tend to take time. You know, it can be a quick flip, you know, in less than 30 days. It can be a flip that takes six months to a year. And if you're in the middle of a flip that takes a year, I mean, the market is changing drastically and there's no way you can possibly predict the future. So, again, the best way to be a flipper is to be really, 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 really good with your numbers, with your projections, with your marketing. And as you know, on flips, you can make 20, 30, 40, 50, 100K on a flip easily. When you buy a property that's distressed, that can be worth $250,000, but right now the way it's dilapidated, it's maybe worth 170, and you put 30 grand into it, and now it's worth exactly what the other properties in that same neighborhood are worth, but you're all in at 200. So when you sell the property at 250, you make a 50 grand spread. This is a beautiful process. But at the same time, I never, this is the one thing that I never even considered doing. And let me say that I flip now, but I don't flip properties per se. I don't hold properties and rehab properties and flip properties to an end buyer. I flip contracts. And we'll get to that here shortly. But ultimately, there's a lot of time, effort, and work put into these flips. And the market could change at any time. So there's a lot of risk. And last but not least, it's a job. There's no cash flow. So as soon as you're done with the flip, as soon as you did all this work for the past six months to get your flip, yes, you get your your 50K, but you got to go out there and you got to kill again. You got to start from zero again. That's one thing I'm not comfortable with, at least not by itself. Okay, let's talk about the the first thing I started doing, which was going to get a traditional loan. 
being a traditional investor, when, when you think of the term traditional, what is investing in a traditional sense? It's going to get a loan, putting down 20 to 25% as a down payment, going to buy a property and putting some tenants in that property that pay you enough money to cover the mortgage and a little bit extra. Now, this is a great model. You're earning cash flow. You're building wealth by having your tenants pay down your debt. The market is appreciating. So you're building wealth on both ends because you own a $200,000 home. The mortgage on the property started at 150. Over time, the tenants are paying that mortgage down from 150 to 140 to 130. Over time, the market is appreciating from 200 to 210 to 220. So you're capturing equity on both ends while you're getting cash flow, while you're getting major tax benefits. And the really cool thing about cash flow is the more property you get, the more cash flow you get. So once you get to a certain point, you have enough money to replace your income. And if you don't want to work again, you don't have to. That's not the case with flipping unless you're building a flipping business and you have employees and you're managing these employees and they're the ones going out to find the property, source the property, flip the property. That's big. And that's not something you would do really just starting out. But with rental properties and getting a traditional loan, loans are easy to get. It's a lot easier to find rental properties. It's really hard to find properties at a deep discount for a flip. But the problem with a traditional loan is there's a cap. The bank will stop lending to you very early at five or 10 properties. Not only is there a cap, but there are many restrictions. There are many guidelines. Your loan is predicated on your personal credit, on your debt to income ratio. And for me personally, going that route alone back in 2016 was almost the exact opposite of what I needed to do to hit my goals. Because if I just wanted to make $5,000 a month from passive income from my rental properties, I needed to acquire 20 units. Now, again, the traditional way of acquiring 20 units is to put down a 20 to 25% down payment. So after all the creative FHAs and, and VA loans and 203K loans are exhausted, the bank is going to require that you put down 20%. So that means on an average $200,000 property, you're putting down $40,000. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't see a way possible for me to get 20 $40,000 down payments in a span of one and a half to two years, which was my goal for escaping the rat race. So again, the traditional route is great to get started. It's great to build cash flow. But based on your goals, your wants, your needs, your desires, and your dreams, and the timeline that you have for that, it may not be the perfect route. Imagine if you had bad credit. This is definitely not the route for you. Or if you didn't meet the income requirements for the property. So then you're like, okay, well, forget the bank. Maybe I'll just save money. Quite frankly, savers are losers. I know you've heard that before. Savers are losers. Saving takes entirely too long. If you're saving an extra $200 a month or $500 a month during the time that you're saving for just one property, you could have replaced your income. And guys, I've been really enjoying my days every single day in 2020. It's been amazing just because I'm able to wake up at 5 a.m., knock out the most important things in my morning, like my exercise routine, my morning ritual, uh, my KPIs in my business. And by, by 10 a.m., like I feel great. I know that I've, I've already accomplished so much in the day. If you don't know what my morning routine is and kind of how I break that down and how you could have a similar morning routine, just go back a few episodes to episode 141, and it's called the 5 a.m. club. But anyway, so I've had a lot of extra time to really just be in the community and, and, and serve and, and get people's questions answered. So I was talking to this lady this morning. She's been trying to repair her credit for the past going on four months. And that's beautiful. 
And the reason why she's been doing that is because she wants to be an investor. She wants to be able to qualify for a loan and start her investment journey. And I'm just like, I love that that's your goal. And I love that you're actually working towards that because a lot of people are not even working towards their goal. But all the time that you're doing that, you could have already gotten started investing. You could have had a few properties. Same thing with this saving concept. Yes, you can save. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, during that period, there's a lot of valuable time where you could have already found other ways, other means of buying property and escaping the rat race that much quicker. What are those other means, you ask? (laughs) Well, of course, the most popular one is OPM, other people's money. Now, this was so fascinating to me when I got started because it gave me the ability to no longer look at my personal finances and think that it was going to be a hindrance to my investing journey, but rather just think about it. There are so many people in this world that you could ask for money, right? There are, oh, there are 7 billion people in this world. You know, there are over 300 million Americans, half of which have a professional job in which they're automatically investing in their 401k or their savings or their retirement, and they're earning 1% to 5% on their money. And a lot of these people are struggling. A lot of these people don't know what retirement is going to look like. A lot of these people need an outlet. And I was just like, dude, if I can serve those people, it, there's an unlimited amount of doors that I can knock on. So if I'm really determined, I'm just going to keep knocking on a door until I get a yes here, invest my money because there are so many people that would need that service. So I was just like, dude, this is it. So I can literally buy as much property as I want is how I felt. So when I first stumbled upon this concept, I was like, this is it. But then again, me personally, it didn't sit right with me. I personally started doing it. You know, there was a point in time in 2017 that I was raising, um, I was raising a million dollars for a $30 million deal, a large apartment complex, part of a syndication group. And again, OPM, other people's money. You can get in on deals like this as long as you have the resources, you have the people in your sphere to get that done. So think about what you're working with and who you know and what you know and where you are, your connections, your network. So ultimately, that process was an experience for me. It was one like no other. I I had a few months to raise a million dollars and I've never in my life asked a single person for money up until that point. And when I finally did, wow, talk about psychological mayhem in my mind. But we're not going to talk about my personal battles and struggles, even when I know how much it's going to benefit them. But let's just talk about the general risk. I mean, when you're first starting out, you're risking your family and friends money. Really, that's really your network. And that's how you grow out of your network. And that's not to be taken lightly. Like that takes a toll on people. You're risking thousands, even millions of dollars of your family's money, of your friend's money, of your of your coworkers money like that. That's pretty deep. And psychologically, if you're not ready for that, you're going to do everything to rebuke. You're going to do everything to shield off the money that's coming your way. Even if you don't on a surface level feel as though that's what you're doing. But if you're a people person and you can stomach it and you love sales, this might be the perfect way for you to grow your wealth today and not have to wait for your credit to go up or a bank to say yes. So that's OPM. But what about something that takes away all the risk? What about something that that helps you sleep at night? And then you think about wholesaling. If you don't know what wholesaling is, let me just paint you a, a picture. So there's a seller, his property is going to foreclosure. And his best bet is to sell his property as fast as he can for what it's worth. So a wholesaler who's been marketing to a ton of these types of sellers finds this seller and is able to get the property under contract. Now, again, if the property was all fixed up instead of dilapidated like it is, the seller could probably sell the property for $200,000. But 
The property requires repairs, 30 grand in repairs at that. There are also back payments because the homeowner is going into foreclosure and hasn't paid their rent for three months. So that's another five grand. So that's 35 grand total. And the wholesaler offers $100,000 for this property. So let's just say all the seller has left to pay off the property is 90K. That's the remaining balance of the mortgage. So there's a good amount of equity in there. Now you would think the first option the seller would do is try to pull out that equity. Reason being is so they can use that equity to fix their house for 30K and catch up on the 5K of back payments so that they can actually keep their house and live in their house. Or they could actually now put their house on the market for 200K, the full value of it. The way you can do that is what? Refinancing or a home equity line of credit, things of that nature. But a lot of these cases, it's too late to do that. Or now they no longer meet the requirements to do that. Because the number one question I get is, well, why don't they just pull out that equity and they'll be okay? Oftentimes, that's no longer a possibility for them at this point. Why don't they just fix the property? Oftentimes, if they can't pay their five grand worth in back pay, how are they going to come up with 30 grand to fix the property so that they can sell it at 200 grand? Because right now, nobody's going to buy it at 200 grand. It's dilapidated. So they're in the middle of a buying. A wholesaler will come along and offer $100,000 on this property. And all he's doing is he's getting the, the seller to sign a contract, a contract that allows him to assign his interest in buying that property. Now, what this wholesaler does is he goes and markets this contract to a flipper. Hey, Mr. Flipper, I have this property. It's after repair value. Is $200,000. So that means if you fix up this property, Mr. Flipper, I guarantee you that you'll be able to sell this property for $200,000. Mr. Flipper is like, oh, really? Let me check it out. Okay. So the wholesaler has decided to sell the property to the flipper for $100,000 plus this wholesale fee of $10,000. So $110,000 total is what this flipper can buy this property for today. So again, the wholesaler has no risk in the property. He's going to go market the property to a few flippers, to a few investors, And he's going to try to see what he can get on the market. All he has is a contract. All he has is interest in the property. He doesn't have to go get a loan. He doesn't have to fix and flip the property. He doesn't have to buy the property. All he has is a piece of paper that allows him to go and market the property. There's practically, and I say practically because there's always risk in everything, but there's practically no risk. And then the flipper, he gets assigned the contract. So the wholesaler just made his 10 grand and he's out of the deal. He's done. So that's how you can make a quick and easy 10 grand wholesaling. And then here's what the flipper is going to do. So the wholesaler is probably working about a week, two weeks, three weeks max to get that done. Now, the flipper is going to perhaps have to perform these 30 grand worth of renovations. So the flipper is all in at 140. So he bought the property for 110, including the wholesaler's wholesale fee. And then he's going to have to put 30 grand in the property over the next, let's just say, four months while he fixes and then markets the property and then goes through closing with his buyer. Things change in the market. Over the next four months, that property, the ARV can go from 200 to to 180, or it can go up to 220, or it can stay the same, or lending may tighten up in that period. Or, I mean, this doesn't happen too often, as you already know, or there may be an 08 crash, right? You don't, you can't really call it. We may face a major correction. So there's a lag time between what the flipper knows the property to be worth when he bought the property and what it can be worth at the end. And a lot of market shifts can go on. It's a lot of risk. Not only is a lot of risk on that end, but the flipper has 140 grand in this property. So he's taking on all the risk. Now, of course, his payout is going to be bigger because once he fixes up the property, he has 140 total in the property. He's set to make about 60 grand with the market as is. So the wholesaler made 10, the flipper makes 60 and the flipper flips the property to an end buyer or flips the property to an investor who now rents out the property. So again, wholesaling, there's very little risk. You may not make the most money, but there's very little risk. You don't need to fix the home and you don't need to find money. 
But at the same time, it still wasn't the optimal strategy for me. And I didn't start wholesaling till 2018. And I started out door knocking and it was gruesome. It was tiresome and it was daunting to do it day after day. But I did it. And at the end of the day, I just felt as though I'm doing all these work for this, these, these small checks. Is it really worth it? Is it, is it, is there something better? Is there something else? And not only that, this is not really helping me build my passive income portfolio. Again, because that's one of the main goals is to build that passive income portfolio so that you have the freedom to do what, to do what you want. And in 2018, everything changed for me. And I started thinking about how to make active income and passive income with one vehicle. How to not only do that with one vehicle, but how could I do that in a way that was just as risk-free as wholesaling? How could I make large heaps of money just like flipping without actually taking on $140,000 worth of risk? How could I make cash flow just like I got a traditional loan without actually having to work with the bank? How could I continually save money in a way that it's not just my money I'm saving, but other people are giving me money to save as well? How could I use OPM to buy deals? Because when you use OPM to buy deals, the sky is the limit. Is there some way I can put a strategy together where I could accomplish all of this in one go round? Those are the early stages of the motivated seller method. That's when I came up with MSM. And if you're like, Dre, what is this new method? There's nothing new under the sun. Nobody can create something new from thin air. And I totally agree. And I want to give you the keys and the secrets to the motivated seller method right now, because it's not anything new. I may have coined a new phrase. I may be launching this course next month, but ultimately it's a combination of a few different creative strategies that allow you to take down any deal risk-free with other people's money to cash flow and to get large payouts all at the same time. So those methods, just in case you want to go ahead and get a jump start and, and see if you can piece it together, which I don't suggest that you do, do not piece this together yourself. It's taken me years to perfect this. It's taken me a few years to get all of this to sync up to where when you're in, in front of a motivated seller, regardless of their situation, you have a deal. If you build rapport, if you learn their motivation, and if you craft a game plan around their motivation, no matter their situation, you have a deal. And guys, most situations don't play out like that. Because let's say you're a wholesaler going to knock on doors and going to talk to motivated sellers. Maybe you come across a va- motivated seller who has a vacant property. And that motivated seller has a vacant property that's worth $200,000. So he's not in any real financial distress. And he has a great job. He makes great money. But he does have to pay $1,500 every single month while that property is vacant for the mortgage. So under the wholesaling parameters, as a wholesaler, you know that you can't buy that property for more than $140,000. That's not even including your fee yet. So you walk up to the seller and you already know exactly If you've done your research, you know exactly what you need to get the property for. So your conversation going into that is all about how do I get this property for this amount? How do I convince the the seller that this is his best possible option? How do I browbeat the seller? How do I get him to see things my way? So there's friction. You guys are not on the same page. Oftentimes you're butting heads. You don't understand where he's coming from. He doesn't understand where you're coming from. And nine times out of 10, What could have been a deal with a different strategy is now no longer a deal because you don't have another strategy to take down to help the seller and take down that deal. You can only take down deals where the seller has a different type of motivation, who's maybe behind on payments, can't fix his property. That's one of the few instances you can take down a deal. All the other motivations out there that sellers have are totally out of your purview. 
You just kind of you just got to let it go by the wayside and keep on moving, even if you build great rapport, even if the seller's super motivated. And I couldn't stand that. Today we have an easy fix. Today we buy the property via subject two, and we continue paying the owner's mortgage, and we hold title to the property, so we're actually the owners, but we'll continue paying their mortgage. We don't take their mortgage out. We don't go get a new loan and extinguish their mortgage. We keep their mortgage in place. We don't notify the bank and let them know, hey, I'm the new owner. We just continue paying their mortgage for them, but we take deed to the property. So now we're the owners, the permanent owners. At that point, you can do whatever you want with the property. You can you can sell the property. You can put some tenants in the property. You can go live in the property yourself if you want. But having that strategy gives you the ability to take down that property and help that motivated seller. Same thing with the type of motivated seller who has no mortgage on the property. But maybe their motivation stems from the fact that they just inherited the property. Yes, it has no mortgage on the property. And yes, there are already tenants in the property. But I mean, this person is in Juilliard. They're in music school or they're in art school or they live on the other side of the world. And this is a strain to them in their life. They just got this asset because grandma died and tenants are calling. They don't want a real estate business. They don't know how to be a landlord. And they're trying to find the quickest and easiest way possible to get rid of this property without losing money, because that's not what grandma would want. There's a different type of motivation. And you'll run into these people all the time. We call these people out-of-state owners or here's somebody legally entitled to a property because of another person's death. And with the motivated seller who has no mortgage on the property, our strategy there is owner financing. Again, treating the owner as the bank. We're not going to get loans from the bank. We've eliminated that. The owner is going to be our bank. We're going to pay monthly payments to the owner. Now, the next few weeks, we're going to get into all the specifics and how this looks and what the numbers come out to and all that good stuff. But for today, I want us to understand the concept. So that's how we buy the property. We either buy it via subject to or owner financing. Those are the two strategies of buying property via the motivated seller method. And what's really cool about this method is that you dictate the terms, not the bank. You're not working with the bank. The seller is your bank. You and the seller are agreeing upon terms. So you're presenting the seller with terms that he's saying yes or no to. So his property, so his property that's worth $200,000, you buy it via owner finance. And oftentimes we put zero money down. Now you can put some money down. We do have deals where we put money down via owner financing, but we try to put zero money down via owner financing. So you just bought a $200,000 property with no money. And you've decided to make monthly payments to the owner. And again, this is how I do it. Not everybody does owner financing like this, but I make monthly principal only payments. So if I decide to pay the owner $1,000 a month, all 1,000 of those dollars are going towards the principal balance. So that means after one month, I now owe the owner $199,000. After 12 months, I now owe the owner $188,000. Any other type of financing, most of your first few years, if not half of the term, is is being eaten away at interest. It's a fantastic strategy to build up your equity, to buy a ton of property without your own money, and to scale as quickly as possible. Not to mention serving a seller who does not want to be a landlord, but doesn't mind getting payments over time to pay them their equity out. I can in turn rent this property out for $1,500 or $1,750 in cash flow. So I'm cash flowing, I'm building up equity, I'm getting all the tax breaks, and I'm just sitting on the property waiting for the market to appreciate. Or I can just stay on the property forever, 
until I've paid the seller his $200,000. And now I own the property free and clear. And now all $1,500 is cash flow in my pocket. And all the while, I haven't spent a dime. But I have a $200,000 property that's paid off and I'm collecting $1,500 a month cash. This is assuming no rent increases and no market appreciation. So those would be an added bonus to this transaction. But what about those large chunks of payments? Where, how do you get those? How do you, I understand that you're buying the property and you can now cash flow if you put a tenant in there, but what about, what about the 40, 50, 100 grand payouts? Like I want those too. I don't want to be a flipper though. So how, how, do, how do we achieve those with the motivated seller method? So then wholesaling, of course, is a part of the method because there are, as I've highlighted, there are deals where it makes perfect sense for a wholesale and the seller will actually thank you for your lowball offer because you've helped them out of a situation that was dire for them. So if you can read and understand and create a narrative around the motivated seller, you have a deal because you have the strategies to help the motivated seller regardless of what their motivation is. And that's really the key. Real estate is a relationship business. I tell my clients all the time, forget about making the numbers work and, and trying to force the deal in. Just build that relationship. See how, see how you can help them. You approach a motivated seller who's going on a foreclosure and you, you tell them, hey, I'll get on the phone with your bank and see if we can, and see if we can find a way to get you back on track. Maybe we can get you a loan mod. I've done it for a few other people. I can do it for you as well. Even if you're unsuccessful at that attempt of having them keep their house and keep their loan in place, the fact that you've showed up, that you've done that work for them, the thing that they've been dreading, they don't want to talk to the bank. They don't want to talk to anybody. They're, they're, they're screening calls. They're screening, they're screening people coming by the house, their mail, and you take that off their shoulders. You're an angel. But let's just say you, 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 you try your hardest and you talk with the bank and the bank is not for it. Ultimately, if the seller has to go into foreclosure and you've been the one helping them through the process to make sure they don't go into foreclosure, what happens now when the foreclosure date is literally right around the corner and you guys have exhausted all the options that allow them to keep their house? And you're like, hey, I still have my offer on the table. I know it's a, I know it's a low offer, but that's, that is your best possible option right now to make sure you don't go into foreclosure. They will choose you over any other wholesaler who's knocking on doors, who's cold calling them because you've taken the initiative to get to know them in their situation. You've actually tried to help them. You've actually tried to serve them. I've had cases where someone, someone else has came along and offered them more money and they still wanted to go with me because of the relationship and the rapport that we had already built. This is MSM. This is the motivated seller method 101. So wholesaling it's how you make big chunks of cash, like 10, 15, 20 grand. But again, I told you guys that even, even those amounts were, were pretty small for me. And I was just like, how, how do we do more? How do we do better? And of course, I've interviewed a ton of guys on the podcast and I've connected with a ton of different people and started masterminding with some of the best minds. And it wasn't until a mastermind session that I was in where I first really started to grasp the concept of a tenant buyer. And that was the fourth and final piece that I needed for MSM. So let's just say that fixers and flippers buy property at 30% off. So 70 cents on the dollar. That's what they're looking for. Maybe even 75 cents on the dollar. And then investors, rental property owners who like the cash flow long term, maybe they're looking, maybe they're okay with 85 cents on the dollar. So 15% off, right? They can get by with that. And they know, they know that over time with compounding, with appreciation, with debt pay down, that it's going to be a no brainer for them to do that. And maybe the average retail buyer, your aunt, your uncle, your mom, who goes to buy a house, they're going to pay, 
about 95 cents on the dollar. They're, they're comfortable with that. They're always, they may ask for a 5% discount or, Hey, fix this before I move in. But you know, they're going to, they're going to pay almost premium, maybe even premium if, the, if there's a lot of offers. And then you have the tenant buyer who's not like your mom and your uncle who can, who can go get, go get a loan tomorrow, but they're self-employed or they've been through a nasty divorce or they don't have the credit score or something's on their record that is, that shouldn't be, that's preventing them from getting a loan. These people under our program, they're willing to pay 100% to 105 to 110 to 120% on the dollar. So that $200,000 property, they're willing to pay 220, 230, 240 for that property. So imagine tying up a contract the same way you would do a wholesale deal, but making an extra 45 grand instead of five grand. You're like, right, what are you talking about? First and foremost, go back and listen to episode 142 of this podcast, which is the very last episode. Had one of my students come on. He's in the middle of closing the deal where he's going to pocket $40,000 profit. And this is the average deal size. So there are two ways to go about the tenant buyer process. The first way is very similar to wholesaling. You get a property under contract. Now, this is not a dilapidated property. This is a property that is in pristine condition, is moving ready. So nine times out of 10, the seller's already marketing the property as a for sale by owner or has listed the property with a realtor and maybe maybe it's expired. So marketing to those people with those properties is a perfect scenario for selling on terms to a tenant buyer because ultimately the tenant buyer is going to rent and live in the property for a year or two while they fix their credit or whatever's going on in their personal life while they work on meeting the requirements for their loan. And then- once they qualify and get their loan, they're going to go ahead and replace the underlying loan with the owner. So here's where it all comes together with the motivated seller method. When you want to buy a property, you're going to buy a property using contracts via owner financing or subject to point blank period. This is for cash flow. This is for wealth building. When you want to flip a contract, again, you can always go the wholesaling route depending on the seller's motivation. And the condition of the property. Our other way of flipping contracts where you can make just as much money as flippers do without all the risk and all the rehab is via the tenant buyer strategy. With this strategy, similar to wholesaling, you'll get the property under contract. And again, in wholesaling, you're going to market that contract to fixers and flippers who want to buy the property at 70 cents on the dollar. But this property that you found and you've gotten under contract doesn't need to be fixed and flipped. It's moving ready now. So you're going to flip this contract to a tenant buyer. So now that you have it under contract, you now have equitable interest in the property. Again, similar to wholesaling. And you're going to go market this contract to tenant buyers, people who are looking for a rent to own program or somebody who just can't qualify for financing today for whatever reason. So you're going to flip this contract to them. Once you get your tenant buyer in place. Somebody who's going to overpay for the property as it is today. You're going to pre-screen your tenant buyer. You're going to get them in a program that gets them to a point to where they're mortgage ready, whether that's in six months, 12 months, or 24 months. I actually have our credit repair specialists and our pre-screening company coming on the show here in the next few weeks. So you guys are going to hear my exact tenant buyer process and the rent-to-own program that we've implemented to make sure that we're putting in reputable tenant buyers in these properties. So they go through that whole process. We make sure that they're qualified in our eyes, not in the bank's eyes. Again, we make our own rules and we still vet them very stringent. Once they're qualified, we get their down payment. 
and they're locking in their price today. We may give a portion of their down payment to the original owner, and then we keep a portion of their down payment. We typically do 75-25 or 66-33, us getting the larger percentage and the original owner getting the lesser percentage. Once this happens, we assign the tenant buyer back to the original seller. And now the tenant buyer is beholden to the original seller as to the agreement that we've created. So they're going to follow through with that agreement. So if it's a two-year lease until they get mortgage ready, the original owner is going to oversee this tenant buyer over the next two years. And once the tenant buyer qualifies for financing, the tenant buyer is going to pay off the owner. But all that while, the owner would have received a down payment, the owner receives monthly rent payments, and then gets a large cash payout at the end. We typically go with this option for two reasons. One, the owner wants the most possible money that they can get out of this deal. And they don't mind managing the tenant buyers because once we collect that down payment, again, it's a quick flip. We're out of the deal. So we get, we get that two thirds or that, that three fourths of that down payment. Let's just say it's 20 grand. We just collected a quick 20 grand. We're out of the deal. We've now introduced the owner and the tenant buyer and they're going to carry on with the agreement that you created. It's as simple as that. And if you want to get started with the motivated seller method, this is the best way to get started because it's our most risk-free strategy and it makes the owner the most money. Here's how this looks. There's a $200,000 property that has been listed with the realtor for the past six months and it hasn't sold. The owner is frustrated. The owner has a mortgage on the property worth maybe let's just say 180. And the owner is sick and tired of paying this mortgage every month while she's waiting for the property to sell. She knows that once it finally does sell, she's going to have to pay a whole lot in commissions and closing costs and and fees. And ultimately, she's probably going to have to come out of pocket to sell her property, which is not what she wants. Now, she could wait for the market to turn and just kind of sit on the property and maybe put some tenants in there. That's an option. Maybe she doesn't want to manage tenants. Maybe she really believes that it'll sell any moment from now, right? There's a lot of possibilities in this, but ultimately we have an option for them. And we love the attack expires because they're already disgruntled, especially with, with the realtor that they've been working with. And we let them know, hey, there's a way where you can actually make some money on this property without losing money and without having paying any realtor commissions whatsoever. And the best way for you to do that, to actually make some money in this transaction is our tenant buyer strategy, where we'll go ahead and get the property under contract. And then now that we're rightfully able to market this contract, because again, we have the property under contract, we have equi- equitable interests, we're going to find ourselves a tenant buyer. Okay. So we're going to find ourselves a tenant buyer and because we're under contract with you, you know, and our contract states that we have an option to buy this property. We're going to sell our option to this tenant buyer. So when we sell our option to this tenant buyer, we're going to collect what's called an option fee. And this is just another fancy name for a down payment. And we're going to split this down payment with you. But before we get into that, understand that it's not going to be a buyer that's going to be able to get financing today, right? Because again, in that case, you'd lose a lot of money. So your best possible option is to wait for the market to increase. Or the way we do it is we will go ahead and, and lock in a price today as if the market already increased for a tenant buyer that's going to agree on that price today and, and pay you that money sometime in the future. 
all the while, you don't have to worry about that mortgage payment anymore because that tenant buyer is going to move into the property and they'll, they'll start paying that on a monthly basis. Now, this is really intriguing for an owner who's upside down or who's struggling, who just doesn't know what to do. So if we're able to get a tenant buyer in the property at $230, we're going to collect the $23,000 down payment. If 75% of that down payment goes to us, we've just made seventeen grand in just a few weeks worth of work, marketing and vetting tenant buyers. Again, just as simple and as risk-free as a wholesale deal because all you have is a contract that gives you equitable interest in the property. You're not on the hook to buy the property. You're not even guaranteeing that you'll find a tenant buyer that wants to pay premium for this property. You're just going to be able, you're just getting the property under contract so that you can go market it and see what the market brings. And if, and if you don't find a suitable tenant buyer and the contract expires, then the contract expires. But there's no risk on your part as the investor or as the middleman in this deal. And you're not putting down any money. You're just going to go to the market and see if you're able to procure a tenant buyer that is willing to pay premium for the property today to be able to live in the property and then be able to qualify for, for financing on a future date. There is no risk on your end whatsoever. You've just made 17 grand in a few weeks, if even a few weeks. And then the original owner who you're assigning this contract right back to once you procure your tenant buyer made some money as well on the down payment. About six grand. Now, again, in the original transaction with the realtor, the owner wasn't going to make any money. They were going to lose money. But now they've just made six grand in the very beginning of this transaction. The $1,000 mortgage payment that they've been making, we've put tenant buyers in the property and then we've assigned that tenant buyer back to the owner. So now we're out of the deal. We got our 17 grand and we're gone on to the next deal. But now the agreement that we've created between the tenant buyer and the original owner says that this tenant buyer is going to release out this property over the next two years while they work on qualifying for financing with our rent to own program. Now we've set them up on our program, even though we're out of this deal. We've set up all the contracts. We've done everything in our power to make sure that both parties know what's going on. They come to an amicable agreement before anything is signed. So everyone is well aware of the parameters. And now the tenant buyer has moved into the property. They're paying $1,500 in rent to the owner directly. So the owner is paying their mortgage with, with the $1,000 and they're pocketing $500 a month. So they made $6,000 in the beginning. They're pocketing $500 a month for the next 24 months. So there's another 12 grand right there. And because there was a $23,000 down payment from the tenant buyer on a property that they're buying at $230,000, they're going to get financed at 207. So when the tenant buyer finally gets financing for 207 and pays off the owner, the owner is now able to pay their mortgage with a portion of the 207, which their mortgage is no longer 180. It's gone down some because it's been two years and the tenant buyer has been paying that down for them. Let's just call it at 175. So at 175, so the difference between 175 and the 207 that the tenant buyer went to go get financing at is $32,000 on the back end. And just to make it easy, we're not going to incorporate all the fees here, but $32,000 on the back end, $12,000 over the course of two years and a $6,000 down payment. The owner comes out in a better position by 60 grand or more. Going back to the alternative, this is God sent for the owner. And if you're able to get in front of these types of owners with this type of motivation, 
you can do this deal all day, every day. If you, do, if you did this once a month and you made 17 grand in a few weeks once a month, what would that do in your life? But where it gets really interesting is when we're actually able to buy the property. We're actually able to invest in the property, which is what we're here for, which is what we do as real estate investors. And that's what I discussed before. If you want to buy the property, you're going to buy it via owner financing or subject to. If you want to flip a contract, you're going to flip via wholesaling or to a tenant buyer. Okay, so I just showed you how to get in and out of a deal with the tenant buyer. But again, guys, you thought that was amazing. Here's where it all comes together again. Because what happens when you combine your buying strategy like owner financing or subject to with your flipping strategy? Like selling to a tenant buyer. What does that look like? How does that work? You know, in this deal that I just walked through. The owner got the most benefit. He made 60 grand. You made 17 grand, but he's also managing the tenant buyer. Things can happen. Now, don't, things don't often happen because tenant buyers are very different from a typical buyer in that we make sure in the contracts and we make sure in everything and, and we make sure in every step of the process that they know that they're buying the property. So they completely internalize the ownership, meaning they pay for repairs. Anything that goes wrong is totally up to them. After a certain period, of course, but ultimately we treat them as the buyers from day one. And they can go in and do renovations and all the things that they want to do because they're actually internalizing the home buying process, even though they're going to be renting for a few months. This prevents 99% of problems from occurring, treating them as a buyer. And again, it's going to leave a lot less headache for the owner. But yet and still, there will be problems. There can be problems. And you're probably thinking about a million different problems right now. Like, what if they trash the property and things of that nature? What if they stop paying? And of course, we have fail safes for all those things. And we'll cover that, again, more in depth over the next few weeks. But I want you guys to know the nuts and bolts right now. And in this transaction, the owner is ultimately the one responsible for making sure it goes as a smooth transaction once you're out of the deal. What if the owner doesn't want to deal with that? Again, some owners, they don't want to even think about the idea of getting a 2 a.m. call. They don't want the idea of tenants. And again, that's where we come in and we buy the property. And then we may buy the property via owner financing and rent it out to tenants. But what if we can create those same three paydays and do a long-term flipping of a contract and create those same three paydays for ourselves instead of for the owner? What does that look like? And aside from our long-term wealth building strategy of buying via owner financing is subject to, this is the next best thing because we're able to make a ton of money in just a few short years selling the property after we've bought it via creative financing. So let me walk through an example of what that looks like. What it looks like to collect three paydays, maybe even four paydays as an investor own the property for a few short years and pull out so much money out of a property that may not be worth a whole lot. So going back to that example where I bought the property for $200,000 via owner financing. So I put no, no money down in the deal and now I own this property. And remember, I put tenants in there the first time and I started collecting $1,500 a month until the tenants paid it off. And then I just kept the property and kept tenants in there. Well, in this scenario, let's just say I don't want to keep the property. It's not the type of property I usually want to keep in my portfolio. Instead of putting tenants in the property, I'm going to put tenant buyers in the property that can buy the property for me. 
Because again, if I could sell it on the market today with a realtor, I'd probably make a good 170, 160, maybe 180 if I'm lucky, depending on realtor fees, closing costs, and all that stuff. But if I sell it to a tenant buyer, somebody who's willing to pay premium at 110% of the cost or 120% of the cost, I can sell that property today at 240. Collect the down payment from the tenant buyer of about 24 grand. Have the tenant buyer move in the property and continue to pay me rent like a normal tenant, like the tenants I had paying $1,500. So I'm still collecting my $1,500. I'm still using 1000 of that to pay back the original owner that I bought the property from. But now this is not a long-term play because in about two years, my tenant buyer is going to qualify for financing and they're going to get financed at $216,000. By that time, the amount that I owe the original owner, who's now just the note holder, has gone down substantially from $200,000 to $176,000 because I've paid $1,000 on that note every single month for the past 24 months, using the tenant buyer's money, of course, while still pocketing another 500. So now at the end of that two-year term, I only owe on that note 176000 but the tenant buyer went to go get financing to buy the property for me at 216. Now, let me remind you, I already got 24 grand in the beginning as a down payment. That's why they only owe 216. So I collect the 24 grand in the beginning. I collect the 36 grand over time and, and just rent payments. None of this goes towards the purchase price. None of this goes towards the mortgage. None of this, this is just them renting the property. So again, they're making a down payment. They're renting the property for the, for two years on our, on our rent to own program. And then they're actually getting their financing to buy me out. So I collect that 216 and of that 216, I pay off the debt that I owe, which is 176. And what's remaining that belongs to me is 32 grand. This is how you flip without the risk because I made 24 grand in the beginning. I made 36 grand in monthly rent payment. Of course, 24 of that grand went towards me paying down the note. Hey, that's still me building equity in the property because when I finally do sell, all I owe is 176. So again, I made 24 grand in the beginning, 36 grand in monthly payments, and then another 40 grand on the back end once the sale is actually complete. That's a total of $100,000 in one deal over two years on a property that's only worth today, $200,000. If that doesn't wake you up, I don't know what will. Oh, by the way, things that come up like repairs and maintenance that needs to be done on the property, that all falls on the tenant buyer because we treat them as an actual buyer. They're, They're getting to move into the home two years early, lock in their rate of 240 and make a down payment. So they're essentially the buyer. We're just waiting for their financing. So we let them know and we treat them and it's the contracts that, hey, any repairs, any maintenance, that all falls on the tenant buyer after a 30-day period. So there's another perk as opposed to just having a regular tenant in there. But again, having a regular tenant in there means that it's your property and you're keeping the property long-term. So again, that's more of a long-term flip after we take ownership. But as you can see, there are multiple paydays that are massive, not to mention cash flow. And in the original tenant buyer strategy where We're not actually purchasing the property, but we're getting the property under contract to purchase. The owner retains all those benefits as they should. But when you buy the property, you retain all those benefits. 
So the way you're going to know which route to go is, again, the seller's motivation and how you guys can come to a common consensus. But with the tenant buyer strategy, everything else opens up. So again, that was the last piece that I needed in my creative strategy arsenal to create MSM, the motivated seller method. That way we can take down any and every deal that comes across our table as long as the seller is truly motivated. Now, there are a few more nuances, as you can imagine. And again, that's the reason why I wouldn't want you to pursue a lot of these creative financing strategies and try to kind of figure this thing out all by yourself. Yet and still, I know some people will. And I want to make sure that if you decide to go that path, you you have the tools necessary, not any random Internet contracts, not having a, a script to follow to talk to sellers and, and even tenant buyers. Not knowing how to not knowing how to analyze these deals the correct way, not knowing about not knowing about the laws in your jurisdiction. Like, hey, I invest in Texas outside of Texas. There's something called a sandwich lease option that a lot of people can pursue for this strategy. I personally can't pursue that. So I don't teach that. There's a lot of nuances. And if you go on this journey by yourself, make sure that you are being well educated and well equipped. Make sure that you're doing proper due diligence and formulating an ultimate strategy for success. Again, I don't recommend this way, but I know some people will do it. So I need to make that clear that you are making sure that you're doing due diligence and going about a strategy such as this the proper way. And you know exactly how I go about that process so that it makes sense. So if you're going to go look up owner financing and subject tools and tenant buyers, make sure that you listen to the episode over and over and over again till it kind of sinks in. Because ultimately, it's a win for everyone. You as the investor, the seller, and the tenant buyer. Now, going back to those nuances, even thinking about the last example I just gave where we owner financed a deal from the seller because the owner had no mortgage. What if the owner had a mortgage on the property and they had equity in the property? There's a certain way that you go about subject twos for that, and you, and you actually combine subject two with owner financing. It's called seller carryback. So make sure that you actually get educated on this. So option number one I see is, hey, go to YouTube. Go to some of these blogs and really try to piece this together, which is the option that I don't want you to take. But I know that there will be a small percentage of people who take that option. Option number two is to head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash MSM and take the course. Depending on when you're listening to this, it may be out. It may just be getting ready to be dropped or you may have missed the first go around and you may want to sign up for the waiting list. Option number three which is the most formidable option, is to make sure that not only are you studying these methods and you're, and you're learning how to implement these methods, but you also have a mentor. You also have somebody in your corner who does this on a day-to-day basis that can guide you through the process, that can help you with the nuance. This is the fast track way. And if you want me to be that person for you, like I've done dozens of clients at this point over the past few years, send me an email. If you're like, Dory, I don't want to wait for MSM to come out. Or I miss it the first time and I don't want to wait for the second time or I need I, or I need the hands on coaching. Send me an email at D.A.R.A.Y. at before the millions dot com. And we could talk about us possibly working together. But ultimately, over the past four years, I've tweaked and prodded and molded until I finally was able to incorporate a strategy that works best for me. 
Now, I think this strategy works best for a lot of different types of investors, right? It's, this can be that investor who doesn't have the best credit score to go out and get a loan. This can be for that investor who does not want to use other people's money or, or is worried about raising money in the first place. This could be that investor who's worried about risk and does not want to flip properties, but still wants to make a killing in real estate. This could be for that rental property investor who wants to be able to take down more deals. As I began to work with more and more clients starting in 2017, I realized that everybody had a different background and everybody had different resources. And I wanted to incorporate a strategy that would not only help me in my investing journey, but would help my students along the way. Besides the realization that I still wanted to be a part of large syndications, but on the passive side, that was a major reason why I transitioned from the apartment space, because I knew I had the knowledge and expertise to continue down that path. But one, I told you guys about my qualms with raising money. And two, my skills were not as transferable to the everyday person who didn't know how to analyze large apartment buildings, who didn't want to get into the complex dealings of investor returns and IRRs and cap rates and investor reporting and and just a large scale operation in general and the rules and regulations that follow syndications and X, Y, and Z. I wanted to help people create a simple path to wealth, but not just simple, an effective path. And I hope it's helped you kind of narrow down exactly where you want to plant your footing. Last thing before I go, I don't necessarily believe that my motivated seller method is for everyone, but I do believe that everyone should be serving motivated sellers. I do believe that we have a certain obligation, especially as investors, to sellers and to buyers and to whoever else that we serve, to be able to serve them correctly, to be able to make sure that although we're in the for-profit business, we could help the other parties involved along the way. So if that means getting a seller out of a situation, if that means making a seller more money, if that means getting a tenant buyer in a house that they otherwise wouldn't qualify for. There are so many ways to serve our fellow individuals. And when you create these relationships in business, regardless of what strategy that you use, I find that you have a more profitable and a long sustaining business. Aside from the actual strategies that make up the motivated seller method, it's a method built on relationships. It's a method built on rapport. It's a method built on serving. And if you take that to anything that you do, just watch the results. On today's episode, we named just a few of the top strategies that are prevalent here in 2020, and there's still a whole lot more. And if you go back in the archives, you'll hear investors from all over the world talking about their strategies and what they do and how they do it and why it works so well. So if this is your first time tuning in, make sure you subscribe, check out the archive, leave a rating and review. And if you haven't yet started or if you were doing it all wrong before, get on the path, get on the right path. Learn MSM or a strategy that best suits your wants, needs and desires your current resources and the timeline that you've given yourself to achieve whatever goal you have set out and ultimately create your lifestyle design. My name is Darrell Lalia and I'll see you on the next episode.